Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author. And in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Little Walter Ross looked ashen, scared. He'd run inside a store to buy some fireworks. He'd been given a quarter to spend and still had four cents left. But when he ran back outside to climb into the carriage he'd arrived in, it was gone. Walter was only six, so this was terrifying. He started to cry, which drew the attention of passersby, who ended up helping reunite Walter with his dad at a police precinct a bit closer to home. His dad, Christian, heaved a sigh of relief, but then asked a question. Where's your brother? Where's Charlie? Walter looked confused. Why, he's still in the carriage, he said, unconcerned. And all the hubbub? Walter had considered himself the lost one. But in truth, it was his brother who had disappeared. On July 1st, 1874, Four-year-old Charlie Ross had vanished with two men who'd been grooming the boys for days with gifts of candy to ensure that they would leave the front yard of their Philadelphia home without a fuss. What happened next went down in history as America's first kidnapping for ransom case, one that remains a baffling mystery to this day. Oh, bring back our darling, the light of our cruel our loved ones to part for though you may steal him from out of our arms he still will remain in the heart earlier in this series i covered leopold and loeb the rich chicago kids who decided it would be fun to kill someone and get away with it Those boys had based some of their overly intricate plot on detective magazines that were the rage at the time, but they also pulled from the historic case of little Charlie Ross 50 years earlier. It was this elaborate puzzle that they put together, and it was based on the Charlie Ross case in part. That's Paula Fass, a professor at the University of California, Berkeley, and author of Kidnapped, Child Abduction in America. Even by today's standards, the Charlie Ross case is quite simply crazy. It's sinister and orchestrated. It absolutely terrified parents across the country, but especially along the East Coast, where most of the tale took place. Here's how it started. The Ross family lived on Washington Lane in an ornate 19th-century Victorian Italianate house that set back a ways from the road. The country was two years shy of celebrating its 100th birthday. Ulysses S. Grant was president, and this was so long ago that Dakota was just one big territory. It'd be 15 more years before it split and became two separate states. The Ross family appeared to be pretty well off, 
Christian Kunkel Ross, the father, ran a wholesale dry goods dealership called Ross Shoot & Co. on Market Street. The business did well enough to afford him his Germantown mansion and household servants, two nannies, a cook, and a gardener. In truth, though, the Rosses were hurting more than they let on, having taken a big hit in a stock market crash the year before. And this market crash was such a big crisis that it had been known as the Great Depression until 1929 stole the title. Now, the crash of 1873 is referred to as a panic. The Ross family was sizable. Christian was married to a woman named Sarah. They eventually had eight children. Charlie was third from youngest, born two years after Walter. Charlie was a friendly boy, described by his father as sensitive, There was nothing to foreshadow that his name would soon be known around the world. He was a little boy of no importance, really, born to middle-class parents in Germantown, Pennsylvania in 1870. His actual name was Charles Brewster Ross, and everyone called him Charlie. This is Megan Good, who runs charlieproject.org, an online database of more than 13,000 missing persons cases that she named after Charlie Ross. Now, the Rosses weren't rich, but they had hired help and a nice house and food on the table. And the area they lived in was generally safe. The kids played outside in the vast front yard, and their parents didn't worry much about it. One day, when Christian noticed his son Walter carrying a piece of candy, he didn't freak out when he learned it had been given to him by a stranger. In fact, Christian's only thought was, gee, that was nice. Someone spotted my cute kids and felt compelled to give them candy. That happened June 27th, 1874, which was a Saturday. Christian wouldn't think about it again for several days. In the meantime, Mrs. Ross went on a trip. She hadn't been feeling well and wanted rest and fresh air, so she and daughter Sophia headed east. She said goodbye to Walter and Charlie and told them she'd miss them, but not to worry because they would be joining her soon in Atlantic City. The first few days after Sarah left were pretty humdrum. Christian kept working while the hired help kept watch over the boys. July 1st was as mundane as the days before it. Before Christian went to work, the boys began badgering him to buy fireworks, and July 4th was nearing, after all, and Christian told them to be patient. He went to work and then came home around 6 p.m. The nanny said the boys were out front playing on the sidewalk, which was typical, so Christian didn't worry about it. But as he wrote in his 1876 book about the affair, they still weren't back by tea time. Side note, I admit I have no idea what time that is. There's no universal guide for evening tea times. But I did find that most families had tea before dinner. And dinner back then was usually on the later side, closer to 8 p.m. Anyway, tea time came and went without a word from the boys, which was odd. So Christian went outside and walked up and down the road to see if he could spot them. A neighbor named Mrs. Kidder caught wind of his search and said, Hey, would your boys have gotten into a carriage with strangers if they'd been asked? Christian, remembering the candy he had recently seen Walter with, said, yeah, actually, they probably would. Mrs. Kidder said she saw the boys talking with two men in a carriage, and she saw the boys climb in and the carriage head east. The exchange had been really friendly looking to her, 
so she hadn't thought twice about it. This is when Christian got worried. He went straight to the police station. When Carly's dad, Christian, reported his disappearance to the police, they initially were completely unconcerned. They were just like, oh, just go home and wait for him to show up. It wasn't that the cops were lazy. They actually had reason to think Charlie would turn up. Back then, kidnapping wasn't really a thing. That wasn't something that happened back then, kidnapping children for ransom. In fact, at the time, it was not actually a criminal offense to kidnap a child, simply because that did not happen. I mean, nobody just didn't occur to anyone to do that. The cops told Christian, don't worry, those two guys in the buggy were probably just messing around, and they'll let the boys out on the side of the road somewhere. Someone will spot them and bring them back. You'll see. And that did happen with Walter, but not with Charlie. Once Walter was found clutching those silly fireworks that he'd been sent off to buy, the gravity of what had happened became painfully clear. The two men didn't feel like strangers to him because on three separate days in the previous week, those two men had stopped to watch Walter and Charlie play, and each time they plied them with a piece of candy. By the time July 1st rolled around, the boys didn't think twice about accepting a treat. And when the men asked if they'd like a ride in the carriage, Charlie blurted, will you take us to buy fireworks? The men said, of course we will. So Walter and Charlie climbed inside the carriage. Walter was in the back seat alone while the two men were up front. Charlie was on the knee of the man in the passenger seat. The men said they knew a place to buy fireworks cheap, so they were taking them to see Aunt Susie, which at first sounded pretty exciting to the boys. But the ride seemed to last a really long time, and Charlie started to cry. He wanted to go home. The men soothed him, saying, we're almost there, which worked for a bit. But Walter was getting a little impatient, too. Finally, the men pulled up to a store, handed Walter a quarter, and told him to grab fireworks for himself, plus some torpedoes for his little brother. Walter dutifully went in and bought the goodies. And when he came out again, Charlie and the men in the wagon were gone. There was no buggy, no brother. Walter was nowhere near home. It was all very upsetting. And a girl approached and asked what was wrong. Finally, someone nice returned him. And this whole time, Walter felt like he had made some mistake, that he'd gotten lost somehow. When, in reality, he had been purposefully ditched so that his brother could be taken. This scenario was incredibly confusing, not just for Walter, but for the police, too. What's the point of grabbing two kids and then shooing one away? They got their answer in a few days when Christian Ross received his first letter from the kidnappers. These missives, and there were a lot of them, were horribly written. Misspellings to a ludicrous extent, awful grammar, the whole bit. And they were, in fact, so bad that police thought they were being faked. Not that the kidnappers didn't write them, but that they were likely writing them poorly to help disguise their identities. For example, this is a line in the very first message. Be not uneasy, you son Charlie Bruster, be all writ. We has got him, and no powers on earth can deliver out of our hand. You will have to pay us before you get him from us and pay us a big cent, too. The spelling especially is so bad that the letters are actually hard to read. 
I'll spare you trying to read the rest verbatim, so I'll paraphrase from here on out. Images of the original letters are online at our website, centuriespod.com, if you want to see them yourself. So the first letter didn't mention a dollar amount, but it made crystal clear that if the Rosses wanted their son back, they'd have to pay, and pay big. In subsequent letters, the kidnappers set a price tag, $20,000, which in today's money is more than half a million Christian had already alerted police, and the letter writers seemed to accept that the authorities would be looking for them. But they also seemed disconcertedly nonplussed about it. The letter said, Go ahead, sick police on us. You're not going to find us. And even if you did, by chance, figure out where we're holding Charlie, our setup ensures that we would be alerted to anyone approaching, and we would kill him. Simple as that. Now, as I mentioned, Charlie's mother, Christian's wife, Sarah, had gone to Atlantic City. Considering her most recent baby had been born eight months earlier, it makes sense she was up for a vacation. Christian wrote in his 1876 book that he was hoping to find Charlie without his wife ever knowing that he'd even gone missing. That's why the very first mention of a four-year-old abducted in Germantown appeared in the Philadelphia Inquirer on July 3rd with no mention of the boy's name. It didn't even give a description. It said only that two men had picked up two boys and that one of them had been left at Palmer and Richmond Streets. It concluded, quote, the detectives are looking into the case, end quote. The next day, another brief ran that, had Sarah Ross seen it, might have started to make her worry. Charlie's name still wasn't mentioned, but it described the boy as four years old with long flaxen curls, an oval face and brown eyes. It read, his parents are almost distracted about him. Well, actually, Sarah wasn't distracted. Not yet. She had no idea what was happening. But soon, Christian went to Atlantic City to break the news to her that her youngest son wasn't just missing. He'd been stolen. Now, remember, this was so novel that it wasn't even a felony to kidnap a child then. The police, they're like, yeah, the best we could do as far as charging these people is charge them with stealing his clothes. But they said that that would actually amount to a life sentence if you did the maximum seven-year sentence for every article of clothing he was wearing. As Paula Fass said, The Charlie Roth case literally changed the definition of kidnapping from a misdemeanor in law to a felony. I mean, that's how unimportant it was before to take a child or be accused of taking a child. Meanwhile, the kidnappers kept writing. Surely, if their intent had been a straightforward swap, kid for money, it would have gone more smoothly with the aid of a telephone. But it'd be two more years before Alexander Graham Bell made that first phone call. So the communication went like this. A grammatical nightmare of a letter would arrive at the Ross home, and it would threaten Charlie's life and tell Christian that he was stupid if he thought detectives would be able to help him. And, oh, by the way, reply to this letter with an advertisement in the local newspaper. Ross would oblige. Back and forth, they communicate this way. The kidnappers with a rambling, threatening letter, and Christian with a succinct reply in the local newspaper, as requested. Once Mrs. Ross knew the reality of her son's kidnapping, 
The real story was published in the newspapers, and people were outraged. Never had a child been stolen in this country and a bounty put on the poor kid's head. Who would do such a thing? The whole family was absolutely devastated, but it was Christian whose grief was on display in the newspapers. Charlie was loved. His father loved him very much. Christian still didn't let his wife in on all of the particulars. He told her that they had asked for money, but he tiptoed around the or else will kill him part. To stay ignorant, she had to avoid the newspapers because this story was everywhere, from Philadelphia to Cincinnati, New York to San Francisco. This story was splashed on all the newspapers. The family even got letters of sympathy from overseas. You hear all the time about one crime or another shattering the feeling of safety in a neighborhood. Well, this one shattered that feeling nationwide. It wasn't the country's first crime by any means, but here people just trusted that even bad guys left innocent kids alone. Kidnapping for ransom was just such a cynical, cruel crime. Unfortunately, all that immediate attention sometimes screwed things up. It was clear from the kidnappers' letters that they were keeping up on the coverage. They would comment on stories that mentioned details or theories or suggested plans to foil the bad guys. One story mentioned that detectives were keeping an eye on the local post office in hopes of spotting the culprit dropping off one of the letters. So the kidnappers relocated altogether. Whoever had the child was confident that their careful premeditation would pay off. And... It did. For the whole month of July, police not just from Philadelphia, but from all over the East Coast, got heavily involved in the search for Charlie. Cops went door to door searching homes. Children, even remotely similar in description to Charlie, were investigated. People came out of the woodwork to offer their help. One man, learning that the Rosses weren't nearly as well off as the kidnappers obviously believed, offered Christian the $20,000 outright to pay the thieves, and he promised no repayment would ever be needed. But because this was the first kidnapping for ransom, Christian was thinking about more than his unique situation. The thing is, because this was a bit of a test case, you know, and this had never happened before, both Christian and the police got this idea that he should not pay the ransom because it would just be like rewarding the criminals for their bad behavior. And it would set a bad example and other people would start kidnapping children for ransom. And they also believe that, you know, the criminals, once they realized they weren't going to get any money, would just give the kid back, which is touchingly naive, really. In other words, Christian was assuming that whatever happened in this case would set precedent for others. He figured that if he paid these guys off, he was literally putting countless other children at risk. On principle, he decided early that he wouldn't do it. Now, he didn't communicate this to the kidnappers, though we also didn't agree to their terms outright. In one of his personal ads, he said he'd negotiate to the best of my ability. Clearly, that meant he'd pull together money, but that $20,000 was a tall order, and he wasn't sure he could find it. In other ads, he insisted that when he hand over the money, Charlie be immediately released to him. To this... The kidnappers said, no way, that's impossible. 
They insisted they would need at least five hours to turn over Charlie after getting their money. And then later, they upped it to 10 hours, maybe even more. That was to give them time to examine the money, make sure it wasn't counterfeit or somehow marked to make it traceable. And once they were satisfied the money was clean, then they'd leave Charlie somewhere where he could be found and safely returned home. Christian kept making excuse after excuse as to why he could not get the money just yet. Just give him a little while longer and, you know, he wants more proof that they really do have Charlie and so on. Christian kept asking for proof to show that they really did have Charlie in their custody. He wanted them to send an article of clothing or maybe a lock of hair. They refused. They deemed it too dangerous. So the only proof they'd give him came via information in their letters descriptions of a ribbon Charlie had beneath his Panama hat to keep his hair out of his face, for example. That detail had never been published in the papers. They also relayed some of the lies they'd told Walter in the carriage, like that they were headed to Aunt Susie's place. And they said, ask Walter if this isn't true. Walter confirmed that it was. And they also said in, I think, one of the ransom letters, Charlie's mother had been on vacation in New Jersey when this whole thing happened. And Charlie was supposed to join her uh, like a few days down the line, but then he got kidnapped. And the ransom letters actually said something like, you know, if you just pay us the money in time, he'll be able to join his mother in New Jersey, you know, and carry on with their vacation just like he wanted to. And this was something they could have only known if they had talked to Charlie. Christian was satisfied these really were the kidnappers, but that didn't mean he could trust that they'd release Charlie alive. They threatened to kill him in every letter. The kidnappers tried to reason with Christian on that front by saying, hey, if we do this and get the money but don't release your kid, this scheme will never work on anyone again. So of course we'll release him. It seems they, too, were thinking about precedent. That didn't do much to sway Christian, though who was already worried that another family would have to go through this hell if he gave in. Finally, after weeks of back and forth, the day came for Charlie's dad to meet his kidnappers. At the end of July, the kidnappers provided convoluted instructions for Christian to board a specific train and ride it until someone popped out of the horizon, waving a flag and ringing a bell. They ordered him to stack the ransom, and bills no larger than tens, in a secured valise. When Christian spotted the flag-waving guy that had been described, he was to toss the valise out of the moving train. Christian followed the instructions, except... He didn't fill the valise with money. Inside it, he put a letter that told the kidnappers he was willing to pay, but he needed actual proof they had Charlie. It was a bold choice, one that could have prompted the men to kill Charlie straight away, as they had repeatedly promised to do. But Christian never got a chance to learn how they'd respond. The flag waver never appeared. Christian rode that train, valise clutched in his hand all night, a sleepless 200 miles for nothing. 
It turned out this was because one of the daily newspapers had made a mistake and reported that Christian was headed to Pottsville, Pennsylvania, to check out a claim that his son was being held there. It was an error that the newspaper quickly corrected, well, quickly for 1874 anyway. Today you could just slap that fix on top of a web story. Back then, you had to wait at least a day to correct the record. When Christian got back from this demoralizing train ride, he placed an ad with a message to the kidnappers that said basically, I did what you asked and you didn't show. Your word is no good. The kidnappers replied, admitting they had bailed because they thought he'd gone to Pottsville, though they later saw the correction. They actually took the blame for it and said, Charlie won't be hurt for our mistake. You'll get another chance. Because, you know, they were nice kidnappers threatening to murder an innocent four-year-old. The back and forth was clearly a nightmare for the family. We know this because of the book Christian wrote in 1876, describing in excruciating detail the roller coaster ride of hope and despair they were on. It was true that some people stepped forward to help, but it was also true that other people stepped forward with lies in hopes of getting a reward. The reward had started in the days after Charlie disappeared at $300, but before July was out, the mayor and residents had pledged a pot of $20,000 for the arrest and conviction of the kidnappers and the safe return of Charlie. That the reward matched the ransom seemed to irk the kidnappers. They actually said in one letter, after realizing Christian Ross wasn't as wealthy as they had thought, they considered cutting the demand in half, but if the public could scrape together $20,000 for a reward, surely they could scrape it together for the ransom, too. So the price tag stayed fixed. So Christian dug in his heels and the kidnappers dug in their heels, and then they kept exchanging letters back and forth for months. The jerks and con artists and nutballs of the world came out in full force. One man told Christian that his son was stolen as punishment from God because the Rosses dared to cut their hair, which the man considered a grave sin. Let your hair grow and God will return your boy, he said. Prisoners came forward to say they knew the culprits and would happily share the details, but only if they were promised early release first. Self-anointed clairvoyants shared their visions, and the situation was so desperate that a lot of them were pursued, but none panned out. Christian said in his book, if there had ever been a time for fortune tellers to prove their powers, it would have been in this case, but it didn't happen. Finally, an informant came out with some plausible information. A convict said he'd been approached in New York to commit a similar kidnapping on a child in the famously rich Vanderbilt family. The ransom then was supposed to be $50,000, but the plan otherwise was just like the Ross kidnapping. They would find a child in the front yard, lure him with candy or toys, and then secret him away until the money had been paid. The informant said he declined because the plan truly did include the real possibility of child murder. And he might have been a criminal, but he wasn't that kind of criminal. The informant identified the men as his own brother, William Mosher, and another man named Joseph Douglas. Both were petty criminals. Mosher was actually on the run at the time, having escaped from jail. The men were known to stay in New York, but they actually had lived in Philadelphia over the summer. 
The circumstantial evidence, at least, excited authorities. New York officers worked to find these guys, updating Philadelphia police every few days. But the weeks dragged on, and the Ross family's resolve was weakening. They just wanted their boy back. By October, Christian was sick from stress. Literally sick. And Sarah stepped in with her brothers to take over negotiations. She decided to forget about worrisome precedent and just pay the ransom. Sarah's brother, Charlie's uncle, set up a meeting to drop the money on November 18th. He hoped against hope this would finally end the family's pain, but the culprits never showed. Then William Westervelt entered the picture. He was the brother-in-law of Mosher, one of the suspected kidnappers, but that's not all he was. He was a crooked police officer. Westervelt had been fired as a New York City policeman, so the deal he cut was that if he helped get Charlie back home, he'd not only get the $20,000 reward, but he'd also get reinstated as a cop. Westervelt kept providing information that he said would lead police to Mosher and Douglas, but it never panned out. And then in December, it all went to hell. In the early morning hours of December 14, 1874, police were called to a house about a burglary. It escalated into a gun battle with the homeowners shooting two suspects. It ended up those men were Mosher and Douglas. Mosher was killed on the spot. And the other one lived just long enough to say that he had been one of the people who had kidnapped Charlie Ross. And they're like, so where is he now? And he's like, you'll have to ask the other guy that. And they're like, yeah, your partner's dead. And so then they were really just out of luck. After both Mosher and Douglas were dead, little Walter was brought in to see their corpses. He identified them as the two men from the carriage. One, in particular, had an identifiable nose. One of the men had syphilis and had the deformities of his face and nose that syphilis tends to cause. Walter recognized that man, Mosher, as the man with the candy. He recognized Douglas as the driver. Walter also took a look at Westervelt, but said he didn't recognize that one. Still, police were sure Westervelt had been part of the plot, as well as his sister, Mosher's wife, Martha, though she was never charged. As for Westervelt... There were allegations that he was involved in all of this, but there wasn't a whole lot of evidence, and he didn't know anything. Like, they even offered him immunity from prosecution if we would just produce Charlie alive, and he said he didn't know anything. Then he got acquitted of kidnapping, but he was found guilty of conspiracy to commit kidnapping, and he got six years in prison. No one knows for sure what actually happened to Charlie. And then Christian Ross spent the rest of his life traveling all over the country, all over the world, trying to find his son. Christian and Sarah Ross spent their remaining years chasing down every rumor, responding to every condolence, and sinking far more money into the search for their son than the kidnappers had ever requested. It's clear they held out hope. I found the 1880 census, so six full years after Charlie disappeared, and it shows that his parents still listed him as part of the household. They reported his age as 10. The book Christian wrote in 1876 was written to raise more money to keep the search going. And it was expensive work. In the years that followed, literally hundreds of boys and then men stepped forward to say they were Charlie Ross. 
Every time, their stories were checked out, and every time, they amounted to nothing. By the time Christian died in 1897, it's estimated he spent $60,000 on the search, well over $1 million in today's money. A month after Christian died, Mosher's nephew, the informant's son, reported that his father had told him Charlie had been killed. Still, Sarah refused to give up hope. Charlie's mother, Sarah, carried on the search, and they never found him, and Charlie was lost forever. In December 1912, Sarah Ross's obituary mentioned the two sons and three daughters that survived her, but more than half of the newspaper notice was dedicated to Charlie. Quote, The fate of the boy is still wrapped in mystery. A fortune has been spent by Mr. Ross, but to the end of his life in 1897, he neglected no chance to find the missing son. Charlie Ross's by the score appeared in every part of the country, and every case was carefully investigated, but without result. Since Mr. Ross's death, Mrs. Ross has been untiring in her efforts to investigate every clue, and her hope that before her death she might find her son was unfailing. End quote. The case continued to hang over Charlie's siblings for the rest of their lives, too. The year after his mother died, Henry Ross, Charlie's older brother, got engaged, and a wire story announced the news. It read, quote, An engagement that recalls the most famous kidnapping mystery in the history of this country was made known yesterday when friends of Miss Jessie Lloyd Gifford, a well-known settlement worker and student of sociological subjects in the city, learn that she will be married to Mr. Henry A. Ross of Philadelphia, brother of Charlie Ross, who was kidnapped more than 38 years ago and whose fate has never been learned, end quote. In the end, this case did create new kidnapping laws, but it did more than that, said Paula Fass, the author. That is a, a fascinating and fantastic case, actually, which I think emphasized the transformation of family life during that time with more of an emphasis on affection by both mother and father, which was expressed through the agony that the father went through, very public agony. It was a case people simply could not forget. This is how famous it was. There were tourists from Europe, from like Norway and places who would visit, you know, the Philadelphia area. And they'd be like, you know, we'd like to drop by Kristen Ross's house and see where Charlie Ross used to live. But yeah, if we have time, we might go see the Liberty Bell, too. Good, who runs the Charlie Project, thinks the family would have suffered less if they'd found Charlie dead. In his book, Christian Ross says the same. It was the not knowing that was so painful. How do you move on when you still have hope? And how do you quash hope when there's even a chance your boy is still alive? Having a child that's missing and you never find out what happened to them, that destroys people. That destroys parents. It destroys families. Because the, basically it's an open wound forever. It also kept the door open for crackpots. Even like decades afterwards, there would be near misses, people popping up claiming that they were Charlie, and then inevitably it turned out they weren't him. The early claims were investigated with vigor. That was when Charlie's parents were alive. After Sarah died, Charlie's siblings were so jaded by all of the false claims that they simply couldn't stomach them anymore. In 1932, the most enduring claim came. An elderly man who had gone by the name Gustave Blair stepped forward and, yet again, claimed to be the missing boy. 
Blair said he remembered being stolen, being hidden in a cave for weeks where he was guarded by two young men, one of them being a young man named Lincoln Miller. He described being taken to a home and raised by a family in Illinois as Lincoln's brother. He said he'd been renamed Nelson Miller after the family's youngest son, who had recently died. When this new Nelson Miller got older, he supposedly confronted his adopted family about not really being related to them, and he said the father threatened to kill him. Scared for his life, the young man moved to Canada as Nelson Miller and returned to the States with yet another new name, Gustav Blair. After that father died, his son Lincoln Miller confirmed the story, so Blair had a witness backing him up, which none of the previous claimants had had. And some of his story really did line up with bits and pieces from the kidnappers' letters. Those missives were long and rambling, so it was easy to overlook crumbs they left behind. But when comparing Blair's and Miller's tale with those letters, you can see some overlap. Like, Blair said he had been hidden in a cave, and the kidnappers referred to Charlie as being both behind a rock and somewhere sunshine didn't reach. Miller said that he had traveled two or three days into the wilderness to reach the cave where Charlie was being held, and a pair of ransom letters sent three days apart suggested that Charlie had indeed been about that distance from Philadelphia. Also, it's notable that if Blair's story were true, it would mean that Charlie eventually had been taken to Illinois and Mosher, the burglar Walter ID'd as a kidnapper, regularly told friends he had just returned from Chicago. Blair took his case to a court in Arizona, and a judge, for one, believed him. The judge declared that Blair was legally the long-lost Charlie Ross, though the legal ruling didn't carry much weight. The court just had jurisdiction over that particular county in Arizona and not anywhere else. So this guy could be, was Charlie Ross when he was within that county, but outside the county, he was nobody. Charlie's brother, Walter, was adamant it was yet another lie. He told a columnist for the Philadelphia Bulletin that he had been jerked around for more than 50 years and had long believed that his brother had died at the kidnapper's hands back in the 19th century. He refused to even meet with Blair. It would no doubt today take DNA testing that apparently hasn't happened yet to determine if Blair's story really was true or merely the ramblings of a crackpot wanting attention. An article published in Pennsylvania History noted that Blair's descendants got DNA ready for comparison in the late 1990s, but I see no evidence that the Rosses ever did. To research this case, I used contemporary newspapers and also read Christian Ross's book, published in 1876. It was honestly as frustrating as it was heartbreaking. Special thanks to Paula Fast for mentioning this case while we discussed Leopold and Loeb. And I also want to thank Megan Good, whose charlieproject.org has been a site I, as a journalist, have used regularly when digging into missing persons cases. The 1874 song, Bring Back Our Darling, was performed and recorded for us by Charlie McCarran. We had found the sheet music, but couldn't find a recording, so thank you, Charlie, for bringing it to life. To hear the full song, you can go to our website at www.centuriespod.com. He still will remain in the heart.
Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs>